1: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Now, imagine you could call up a friend and say, meet me at the bar and tell me what's going on with the economy. Now imagine that's actually a fun conversation. Now stop imagining and subscribe to the Planet Money podcast. Find Planet Money on iTunes along with other NPR podcasts. They are young. They are tolerant. They are entrepreneurial. They are civic-minded. No, wait a minute. They're spoiled. They're lazy. They're entitled, they're living in their mother's houses, and they are doomed to disappoint history. I am talking about the generation called the millennials, those born, roughly speaking, in the 80s and the 90s, now America's youngest adults. A caricature, sure, on both sides. But there is something in there, and there's somebody inside there. So let's debate this, yes or no to this statement. Millennials don't stand a chance. A Debate from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York. Two against two. They will argue for and against this motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. As always... Our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Millennials don't stand a chance. That is our motion, and let's meet the team arguing for this motion. First, please, let's welcome Binta Niambi brown And Binta, uh, you did corporate law for quite a while, but you left. You went to the uh, Kennedy School at Harvard where you worked on market solutions to humanitarian and human rights problems. But I, this is what I to ask you about. A few years ago, uh, you were profiled in Real Simple magazine, profiled as a mentor to a millennial. And I want to ask you, what does it take to mentor a millennial?
0: Uh, it takes patience because? A- and, and compassion. Because? Uh, because they're millennials. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm not going to pick on millennials. I think they're great.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Binta Brown. And Binta, your
0: partner is? My partner is Keith Campbell.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Campbell. Keith, you are also arguing for this motion that millennials don't stand a chance. You're head of psychology at the University of Georgia, you're co author of the book, The Narcissism Epidemic Living in the Age of Entitlement. You're here to talk tonight in part. Part of your argument is about the narcissistic trends among millennials, this younger generation. But Keith, you know that this phenomenon of slightly older generations wringing their hands about slightly younger generations is as old as the hills, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing to keep in mind, there's a lot of positives we see in millennials. uh, Tolerance for other people being a big one. But there are some downsides I'm going to talk about.
1: You've come to the right place. Ladies and gentlemen, W. Keith Campbell. Our motion is Millennials do not stand a chance, and two panelists will be arguing against this motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome David Burstein. (laughs) David, you are 25. You are, congratulations, the youngest debater we've ever had on this stage. Um, You are founder of Generation 18. That's a nonpartisan organization to get out the vote among young people. You wrote the book Fast Future, How the Millennial Generation is Shaping Our World. You made your first documentary back in 2008. It was called 18. You had interviews with Jeb Bush, Samantha Power, John Kerry. How old were you when you started that project? Uh, I was uh, 16. 16 years old, and and did you have any idea at the time that you had no idea what you were doing?
3: Yeah, I didn't really think about that fact. Um, it might have been good to think about in retrospect, but I think it's kind of typical of this generation that we just go out and do right away. Thank you, David Burstein.
1: And David, your partner is Jessica Gross. Jessica Gross, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Jessica Gross, you are a self-described ancient millennial. Uh, You're a contributor to Slate and Bloomberg Businessweek. You write a lot about uh, culture and creativity for fast companies, co-create. In 2012, you published your first novel, Sad Desk Salad. So you've done a lot, and you are doing a lot. So what is the top reason you took time out from all of that to defend millennials on this stage tonight?
4: Well, I mean, I couldn't just sit home and listen to my generation be maligned by people who don't understand us. So, you know, I had to come defend our honor.
1: All right, you know that you are being judged like they are as well. <laughs> Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. Jessica Gross, and these are our debaters. On to round one. Our motion is Millennials Don't Stand a Chance. Opening statements from the first debater. And let's welcome to the lectern W. Keith Campbell. He is professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, co author of several books, including The Narcissism Epidemic and The Handbook of Narcissism and Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome W. Keith Campbell.
2: What I'm here to argue for is that millennials don't stand a chance. What I'm not here to do is malign millennials or bash millennials. That, that's fun. I just don't want to do it. It's, I, don't, I don't want them to fail. I don't want my kids to fail either, who are going to be the next generation. But that said, I think there's a lot of problems. And to sum it up as easily as I can, I'd say there's a major disconnect or major gap between how young people were raised, people born in the 80s and 90s, the millennials, and the world they're facing today. Think about it this way. They were raised with a very inflated, optimistic view of themselves and the world, and we've given them a really terrible place to get a start. If you think about the millennial self, these are kids that started. were born in the 80s. They started school right when the self-esteem movement hit. This was brought to us by the good people in California in 1982. Started going through schools. The idea was if we can give kids self-esteem, they'll do better in life. And the way to give kids self-esteem is not to have them succeed at optimal challenges or have strong relationships, which actually works. It was to tell them they're special and unique and give them lots of awards and trophies, as people sort of lament. Um, So we set people off that way, and we do have a generation with very high self-esteem, especially college students. Self-esteem is near the top of the scales we measure. We also see some of the darker side of self-esteem with that. We do see increasing narcissism. It It wasn't like it was flat with Gen X and then jumped up but it just keeps going up and up. So if you take that inflated psychology that the millennials were raised with and you look at reality right now, we have very high youth unemployment. We're talking about 12, a little over 12% for people in their young 20s with very liberal numbers of unemployment. We have a trillion dollars in student loan debt. And student loan debt is horrible. I mean, this isn't like, gee, I bought a McMansion. Oh, I can't afford it. I can live in it for three years and send the keys back. And this is like, I can't get rid of this stuff because the government says you can't get rid of it. You have massive levels of competition for jobs. You have massive levels of competition for those elite education tracks. Um, The millennials are having to put off marriage. The average marriage age now for women is 27, 29 for men. You have over a third of young people, 18 to 30, living back at home with their parents. We have decreasing civic engagement on most measures we look at. Millennials volunteer more than any generation we've studied, so that number's gone up. They voted a lot for Obama's first term, but other than that, civic engagement has dropped. And generally, the, the sense of trust we have in the country for each other and for our major institutions, our journalists, our, our government, is at the lowest point we've ever measured. I mean, the, the country in terms of just our basic civil, civic institutions is collapsing. Bottom line, in infl- people growing up, Raised by us. They don't raise themselves. They're raised to have a very positive view and a very optimistic view. And they're put in a reality that is incredibly challenging, incredibly negative. And I apologize for being so negative on such a nice evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you, W. Keith Candle. Our motion is Millennials Do Not Stand a Chance, and here to argue against this motion is Jessica Gross. She writes for Fast Companies Co Create and is a frequent contributor to Slate and Bloomberg Businessweek, and also author of the novel Sad Desk Salad. Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Gross.
4: So like John said, I call myself an ancient millennial. I was born in 1982, which is the first year of a lot of definitions of millennial. I have a baby and a husband and a mortgage and all those things that Keith worries that millennials will never have. Um, We are the most racially diverse. We are the most educated generation of adults today. We've got the lowest amount of debt in 15 years. And that's, you know, in part because we've seen what's happened to the world, and we've decided to pull back on buying frivolous things. Um, And we have a deep entrepreneurial spirit, as has been mentioned. So why do our detractors say that we're doomed? They say we're immature, immoral narcissists who want to live in our parents' basement. It's always the basement, or maybe the attic. Um, So these stereotypes are based on false media narratives. So let's start with that first myth, that basement myth. So, it's true that a greater percentage of millennials live at home than previous generations, but the degree to which that's true has been completely exaggerated. Keith said a third. That's not the numbers I've read. Um, The numbers from Pew are that 15% of millennials live at home compared to 12% of boomers and 13% of Gen X. So, You know, I don't know where they're getting that. And the second part of the myth is that it's necessarily a bad thing. Half of the millennials who live at home are in college. And so I think it's better for them to be living with their parents while they get an education than to be wasting money they don't have on dorms and apartments. So the second myth is that we're immature. And some of this immaturity is said because we're not buying cars and we're not buying homes like the people in generations before us did. Um, And that's not because we... We don't have the maturity. It's because we prefer to live sustainably, not just financially sustainably, but environmentally sustainably. We want to live in close communities. We want to we use public transportation. And I think that that's all to the good. The age of the McMansion and the SUV, the ginormous SUV, that's over, and good riddance to that. So, the third myth is that we are narcissists. And what galls me is that it's always the boomers saying this, and they were the original narcissists. I mean, I think they forget that Tom Wolfe called them the me generation in 1976. but. So Keith has told you that we have this inflated overoptimistic sense of the world, but that's not my impression at all. If you went back to 2000, uh, David Brooks wrote an article in the Atlantic called The Organization Kid. It might have been 2001. I was either a freshman or sophomore in college, and that was a much more accurate picture of how we were raised. We were raised to know that we were competing in a global world. Remember everybody had to learn Japanese in the 80s and 90s because we, they wanted us to our parents wanted us to compete the same way that kids are learning Mandarin today. And he says, you know, we are more narcissistic because we agree with statements like, I will be a success. Um, You know, those are just statements. And I think action speaks so much stronger than that. As has been said, we volunteer more than any generation. 73% of millennials volunteered for a nonprofit in 2012. Um, They're the lowest levels of drug use, teen pregnancy, and youth crime. That speaks louder than any multiple choice test to me. So I'm not going to stand here and say we weren't dealt a bad hand. Like it's been said, we graduated into a recession. Their jobs are scarce. And that there are systemic problems in America with poverty and income inequality that plague all generations, not just us. But I think that millennials are uniquely qualified to solve these problems. So I really urge you to vote against the proposition because we are so far from doomed. We're just getting started.
1: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. The motion is, millennials don't stand a chance. Stay with us. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, Millennials Do Not Stand a Chance. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third, debating for the motion that Millennials Don't Stand a Chance. Benton Nayambi Brown, she is a lawyer, a startup advisor, a human rights advocate. She has been recognized as one of Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 business leaders and as a young global leader. By the World Economic Forum, ladies and gentlemen, Binta Niambi Brown.
0: So, a couple of things that I'd like to unpack. First, the notion that millennials are the most educated generation in the history of humanity ever. We can look at that from a quantitative perspective, and we can also look at that from a qualitative perspective. Let's talk about it first quantitatively. Um, my generation, Generation X, at this point, uh, depending on the study you look at, we range in education from 30 to 45% having completed a, the equivalent of a four-year college degree. If you look at the boomer generation, the boomer generation is now around 32%. The The very wonderful cohort that comes up behind me, they are currently at or estimated to be around 33 percent. So this notion that they have more education at this point in time than anybody else is actually not not true from a quantitative perspective. It's also not true qualitatively. The quality of education in the United States, as we all know and have been reading about over and over and over again, has been declining precipitously over the course of the last several decades, in particular as concerns science and mathematics – um, that people are taking tests, that they are taking APs, that they are going to college does not mean that they are learning any better, particularly in an environment where our government has insisted on teachers teaching to the test instead of developing deep, critical, analytical thinking skills that are absolutely and unequivocally necessary in our workplace. So quantitatively, is not quite there either. As noted, the millennial uh, group is the most diverse in the history of humanity, Um, 43% are non-white. Of that 43% who are non-white, 35% of them are black and Hispanic. The black and Hispanic millennials are in primarily underperforming schools. They are mostly unemployed. They are not receiving college degrees at the same rate. And the situation for them is particularly bleak and really, really bad. We can't just talk about the exceptions. We have to talk about the whole. So when we say on our side that millennials don't stand a chance. We're not talking about Jess. We're not talking about David. We're not talking about a couple of my millennial mentees who are here tonight. We're talking about all of the rest of them. We can't focus on just 1% or 10% of the stars. So even with that, 66% of millennials are not earning college degrees, right? That sounds like it's a high number, and it's not when you think about the number of people who have actually earned college degrees. But in an economy that is a knowledge-based economy, where increasingly we need people with these computer science and engineering degrees, it's pretty bad, right? And it's bad because, as was alluded to earlier tonight, we're entering into the age of artificial intelligence. We're entering into the age of machine learning. The kinds of jobs that we've prepared millennials to take are not going to exist, And so then what do they do? They will end up in the kind of jobs and the kinds of careers where they are overeducated and underpaid. And that's not particularly good, particularly for a generation, as Keith has already said, which has $1.1 trillion worth of student debt. And this isn't, by the way, any of their fault. All of this is the fault of the kinds of policies baby boomers, the greatest generation, and even a few people—the generation X in Washington right now—have put into place. It's the absence of a good jobs policy. It's the, the inability for us to work on entitlement reform and shifting all of that burden to millennials. Things are not as good as they seem. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Vintaniambi Brown. And that's our motion Millennials don't stand a chance and here our final debater to argue against this motion Millennials don't stand a chance David Burstein he is the author of Fast Future how the millennial generation is shaping our world he is founder of the voter engagement group Generation 18 ladies and gentlemen David Burstein
3: I got my start as, as was mentioned earlier in, in political engagement thinking about young people in political engagement and the trend we have seen in youth political participation over the past several election cycles is really remarkable. Uh, And this is in the face of a generation who has seen arguably the most toxic political climate that we've seen in in many, many years, Uh, who has turned out in record numbers to vote in recent elections, Uh, who have actually had an incredible role in pushing issues like gay marriage uh, to be where, where they are at today. This is the generation who has the largest support of that issue. So it's really a deeply engaged generation. It's also the first generation that truly is a global generation, that understands the the role of their relationship to the rest of the world. For previous generations, people have actually had the choice about whether or not they wanted to recognize that there was another part of the world out there. Um, This is the first generation who has no choice but to realize that and deeply understands that. In fact, 93% of people in this generation say that they at some point in their life expect to live or work globally. You also uh, look at this generation in terms of social activism, which is also something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And, And it's true that volunteerism is up, but one of the most remarkable things that's happened over the past past several years is you've seen record numbers of people in this generation starting their own businesses, starting their own organizations, and caring about issues uh, as diverse as gang violence on their own street or international development uh, in Africa. And you see this incredible range of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, who are participating in trying to make the world a better place. In fact, an overwhelming majority of people in this generation actually say they would take a job that pays them less money if they could have more impact in that work. If you think about the context for the past several years of what this generation has gone through, growing up in an age where we, we lived under the specter of two wars, uh, where we saw every one of our biggest institutions fail, banks, educational systems, our political system, it is incredible to note that this is a really resilient generation. In the face of the economic crisis, people in this generation actually became more optimistic about their own economic future. And those numbers are still true today. In fact, 8 in 10 people in this generation, uh, according to a, a Pew study that just came out a couple weeks ago, say that they have enough money now to live the life that they want to live or, and that they will in the future. The, the final thing that I want to talk about is this role of, of entrepreneurship. Binta sort of made the point about the fact that there are only... Uh, a handful of uh, of people who are, who are doing this, but it's important to note, first of all, that there are the largest number of self-made millionaires and billionaires under the age of 35 that exist in this generation than ha- that have ever existed. Um, and if you were talking about whether or not millennials don't stand a chance, uh, I think that's an important consideration to look at the amount of wealth creation, not just what that means uh, in, in, in the raw numbers, but what that means in terms of the kind of things that this generation is capable of of and it 's a generation that really has accomplished in its short in its short lifetime an incredible amount um, so i'm going'm i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now and looking forward to discussing it with you guys a little more
1: Thank you David Burstein and that concludes round one of this intelligence squared u s debate where our motion is millennials don 't stand a chance so Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another in turn and also take questions from me and from you in the live audience. We have two teams of two arguing for and against the motion. The team arguing for the motion, W. Keith Campbell and Binta Brown. We heard them say basically that millennials have been set up to fail by being sent into a challenging world without really having any of the antibodies to challenge Uh, They say that they have not been as well-educated as they think they are, that they are narcissistic like no generation has ever been. They concede that there are success stories, but they say those are the exception. Bottom line, they're not saying nasty things about their opponents. They're saying none of this is their fault, that they've been cheated by the generations ahead of them who left them a terrible deal. The team arguing against the motion, Jessica Gross and David Burstein, um, they're saying that basically millennials are the victims of a lot of ridiculous myths in the media. Yes, perhaps they live in their basement. It's not because they're freeloading. It's because they're frugal. They say, it in response to the notion that they're narcissistic, that no generation has been as civically involved as this one, that this generation has healthy relationships, an entrepreneurial spirit, that it's optimistic, resilient, and therefore that it holds in its hands the solutions to the very challenges that they are facing. What I want to do is put a question to the side that is arguing that millennials don't stand a chance and tell you that what I hear from your opponents is an explosion of optimism. They've heard everything you say to a great degree concede that times are tough, but boy, do they believe in themselves, and purely on optimism, they think they're going to get through. And I want to put to either of you a response to that.
0: So I I think optimism is awesome. Um, I I think that when you look at the level of optimism for Generation X, when we were the very same age as you guys are now, was actually equal to your level of optimism. Optimism is not something that's lost upon the young. We expect the young to be optimistic. But the practical reality is that as people grow older and as their responsibilities increase and as they do take on mortgages and have families, the ability to service that optimism in every generation or over the course of history, it decreases. I hope that's not the case for millennials, It's not anything special when you compare it to other generations, Uh, Okay,
1: that's the point. David, uh, in other words, your opponents are saying they've heard it before.
3: Well, I mean, I think you have to look at the context of the circumstances. You know, the, the, the hand at which Generation X was dealt, I think that's what's really important. That you would expect in the worst job market in history, you would expect in the face of huge unemployment and a terrible economic climate that the natural, the natural tendency would be for people to be incredibly not optimistic about their own economic future. But what's even more interesting is that people are, people are optimistic about their situation at the moment, not just about their future and what's ahead. And I think that that's really what's particularly striking about it.
0: Can, can we just talk about
1: let me Let me bring Keith in to respond to that.
2: I, optimism... is is fine. I'm not as big a fan. I'm a little more of a fan of of self-control and sort of effectively moving towards goals rather than global optimism. I don't know if we're seeing that. I just, I don't know. I don't know if there's data on are people saying, look, I'm in trouble. Am I gonna am gonna do X, Y, and Z to get out of trouble, or are they are they kind of moving into something else to get away from it? I, I don't I just don't know the answer to that. Jessica?
4: Um, I would say we are effectively moving towards goals. I mean it was mentioned that you know, millennials are, are putting off marriage and, and family and that in large part is because women have flooded into the workforce and have higher levels of educational attainment and that's why it might seem like immaturity if you don't actually talk to millennials and look at the statistics um, they are putting off these things not out of a sense of immaturity but because they do want all of their ducks in a row. They're planning for these things and it just it, that planning takes longer and I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing. I mean all of the studies show that older parents Are better parents. So I just don't see how that's a cause for alarm. That's a cause for celebration.
0: Okay, Ben Brown. To talk about this context point, um, David, so first of all it, it sinks to be young having gone through what your generation has gone through but keep in mind that not only did your generation go through all of the things your generation has gone through but the Xers and the Boomers and many members of the greatest generation have gone through the same. I think that you can look at any different, at any point in history and say yes, but we're extra optimistic because of look at what we've gone through. That, that argument just doesn't really sit with me. Concern, like when you think about what Keith is saying with optimism, and one of the dangers with optimism is that it does fuel consumption. You say that your generation is more frugal and in fact Studies show that your generation has, has has had the fastest increase in luxury consumption. Um, I saw something along the lines of 25% of millennials report not having enough to cover their expenses, but at the same time, They've increased 33 percent in their purchases of premium fashion and services okay, more let, than any other let, generation. Let's let the other
1: side respond to that to that sure. uh, argument about spe- uh, materialism. Let's let's call it. Jessica or David. Well, I, I mean, I think I, I think the important thing to consider
3: there is as, as millennial spending patterns change, um, that 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 should not be surprising to anyone who looks at who looks at economics. That when people are not planning to buy houses and cars and these big capital expenses that people normally go through, that you would in- see increased spending in other areas. I also think one of the interesting things about you look at in those numbers, there are two things which are kind of tricky, which is one is increased spending on people eating out and increased spending on travel. Both of those things show that people are engaging in those activities with friends as ways of, of developing communal experiences. And this goes to the question of thinking about community, which I think is really one of the big traits of this generation, that this generation is finding new ways to engage community in helping them so have happier can you lives.
1: very quickly, in, in yes. fifth 15 seconds, list some of those ways, and then I want to hear from your opponent, Keith. The,
3: the, the most important point I would make on that is that this is a generation that has more strong relationships with a diverse set of people than any generation. Quantified how? Opponent. Is that
2: well, your, your gut, or is there... No,
3: it's it's in, term, it's in terms of the kind of access to communities that any person in this generation has okay. access to. Okay, Keith Campbell.
2: Well, I think what we've traded, in a long part, a large part, because of this, the ability to have social networks, I think there's been a trade-off of breadth the depth some, to some extent, because it takes time to nurture a broad network, but the networks are certainly broader with young people. I just don't think the depth is necessarily right.
1: deeper. I, I let me take that question to Jessica, because Jessica, a couple of times you've done a little flipping of their narrative, as you did with uh, postponed marriage, which I'd like to come back to. But, but your opponents are saying that this notion of relationships that are online and that are broader, they're saying they're, they're just not as good as real good old-fashioned relationships. And, and, and I think a lot of us understand why they say that, but uh, does, do you need to concede that point?
4: No, absolutely not. I mean, I will make the example of g I talk to my friends throughout the day on Gchat, the same people over and over again, the same set of four women. The constant communication that we can have with our close compatriots is... Immeasurable. So yes, we might have geographic distance, or you know, we might have these broader networks of friends. But I think actually, it, it, it enables a, a closeness, and I think you know, the number of close friends that people have um, has not demonstrably changed, and I don't think that those numbers have moved.
1: Let me uh, move so- on to something now to Keith Campbell's area of expertise, which is this argument about the generation being narcissistic. You didn't actually detail what that personality. Is What are some of the specifics?
2: Well, it's having an inflated view of yourself and using relationships to regulate that. So if you're on Facebook, it's putting an attractive photo of yourself and uh, bragging about yourself and having more Facebook connections. If it's in marriage, you have a trophy spouse. So you sort of use your interpersonal relationships to bolster your self-image. And that's bad. Well, it's good for you. I mean, it... It, wor- it works for you. Take it seriously.
1: know I think most people see it from inside. Why does it not work for other people? What's the harm? Is well, saying?
2: when you're being manipulated by somebody as a trophy or as a prop in their own life narrative,
1: it becomes problematic. And just to, nail, just to nail it before it. I go to the other yeah. side, you're saying that this generation is characterized by that trait. There's. No, a- I'm
2: saying the levels. The levels of narcissism have gone up about half a standard deviation, which is. Shifting a little bit. Okay. What happens, though, is when you shift everybody a little bit, the number of people at the extremes goes up a lot. And those are the ones that drive you crazy when you interview them for jobs or go out on dates with them.
1: Let me bring that to your opponents and to you, Jessica Gross. Um, your, Your opponent has studied this, takes it seriously, and definitely bears you no ill will on this. So in any way, honestly... Do you recognize your generation in that description? I
4: don't. Um, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way we use social media. Look, everyone is trying to present their best face to the world. We just are the first to have these tools. So, yes, maybe a pretty, a pretty selfie of yourself might seem to be narcissistic, but I think that that's just not actual evidence of anything except these tools existing.
1: Binta, I know this wasn't your ammunition that you brought in, but what's your response to Jessica on that?
0: To selfies? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I I think that you know, I, I I all of the hair on my back raises when I hear what I've referred to as millennial exceptionalism because. In, in the sense that everything is going so, so great. And, and the problem with it isn't to say that there aren't some things that aren't going incredibly well. The, I never the,
4: said I had a whole paragraph about how we've been dealt a bad hang, hand. Hang David, is it a hand? Hang on,
0: hang on. <laughs> Our turn. You know, I, I, I get concerned when I hear about we're the greatest this, we're, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing that, because it means that we're not fo- focusing on the underlying problems. And the underlying problems are the reasons why. You know, the narcissism is, narcissism is one thing. You know, some of these other things that you hear in the media, I think the media has done millennials a complete disservice because they're not focusing on what the actual issues are. And because they're not focusing on them, our policymakers aren't doing what our policymakers ought to be doing in order to help them out. I'm not going to get particularly excited about things like selfies.
1: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. We have four panelists arguing this motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. I have four debaters here on the stage with me, two teams of two, debating this motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. Let's go to audience questions Uh, right there.
0: Hi, my name is Charlotte. Uh, this is for David. I'm just curious about um, thinking about social media with kind of political purposes, and a lot of the talk tonight has been sort of about individual uses of social media for narcissistic purposes, and I'm just kind of curious, are millennials engaging in social media activity for political ends as opposed to just narcissistic ones?
3: Um. In a word, yes, um, and and in fact, it's actually one of the great accomplishments I think of this generation. I mean, this is a generation of people uh, without whom it would have been. V- it's very difficult to imagine our current president in the White House. So when you look at this, this is a generation that by 2020 will be a third of the electorate, and they have shown an ability to care about politics, to get engaged in politics, and not. And it's not just. It's not just particularly on candidates. I mean, you look at SOPA and, and PIPA and what this generation did, aided by technology companies to be able to work on those things. You look at the Arab Spring internationally. You look at the CEO of Mozilla was routed out of their job in large part by millennials who didn't agree with his, his stance on gay marriage. So there's an incredible advantage that millennials have when it comes to social media, particularly in political politics and activism, because we have an understanding of that landscape as digital natives that immigrants uh, don't particularly understand as well. Keith, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I
2: mean, social media like fire. You can use it for good or bad. The the two points I'd make, sort of in opposition to that, is Coney, twenty eleven. What was Coney? The the greatest uh, movie of all time that people are now writing dissertations on and be good masters on on what they call collectivism or slacktivism, where people are willing to like a lot of things but don't really act. And, And in terms of the Obama campaign, I don't know if that was grassroots millennials doing that or if that were. Was a bunch of Gen X behavioral economists figuring out how to manipulate millennials into voting. I mean, I think there's. Um, for, for ill.
1: Different opportunities, I, but wow, said, you are really assaulting the basic myth here. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I know I, some of them. Can I, can I respond? On yes, that? please. Save
3: I mean, I, I just, and, and, uh, sorry, uh, I can't, I can't really let that go. I mean, so, so, the, so, clicktivism is, is essentially this idea that all people are doing is clicking on things, and they don't really care about anything. So when instead your people are liking a Facebook post, and they think here is this great thing I've done for the world by clicking a button, I think it's a, I mean, people are laughing as I'm saying this. It's kind of a ridiculous idea. Sure, lots of you watch that Kony 2012 video. Why did why did they watch it? People didn't think they were doing an act of heroism by watching that video. But I, I tell you tell you one thing, more people in this generation know about an African warlord than previous generations knew and what he's doing and the human rights abuses he's carrying out. So I think when you think about the the fact that more people in this generation have awareness about the rest of the world and the problems in the world, and have some level of engagement, everything we know about human behavior and how people evolve over time suggests that if you get engaged with a global issue, have one smidge of awareness, or you donate to something when you're younger, the chances that over the long term, that behavior is never going to manifest ever again. That would defy everything we know about human behavior and how people develop.
0: Binta, you look like you want to respond to this one. I mean, Kony is such a funny example, because because the issue had largely resolved itself before the video came out, it was also a bust because there was a very large percentage of people in Uganda and throughout the African continent who were extraordinarily offended by that video. Uh, you know, it was a video that was done without having a lot of close interaction. I mean, we talk about you know social media and technology and the different ways
4: of being
1: So that activist. goes to a naivete. Right. I think you're well, saying. Well, can of I the, give of two examples of,
4: of when social media worked to actually make change in this country?
1: Yes, but but, <laughs> what, but would you address before you do the question? The point that Binti made—that there was a naivete in your generation—but I think that you know,
4: in the '60s, I think there was a great naivete in a lot of the activists that were. I mean, youth activists are often. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica Gross. are often deeply naive. I mean, so the two examples I would come, uh, I just can, off the top of my head, one was when Susan G. Komen for the Cure, the breast cancer organization, went against Planned Parenthood and, and wouldn't, do, wasn't giving money to Planned Parenthood anymore. There was a huge uproar. The CEO was ousted. It completely it didn't ruin the organization, but it gave them a really hard time and it got a lot more people aware, not just of breast cancer, which it did, but also about Planned Parenthood and the work it does. I write a lot about women's issues. So the other thing was Wendy Davis and her stand in Texas and how quickly that circulated around the internet and made people aware of the issues with abortion rights in Texas, and then a swarm of mostly millennial women stormed the Texas statehouse. You know, ultimately it didn't work out, you know, but still, like, there was just this groundswell of activism that did not just raise awareness, but I think could be argued made change. So I think, you know, it's not just clicking on something. People are getting enraged and making action and voting You know, young women really care about these issues and they are constantly aware of them.
1: Sir, right down front here. Yes. This is for David, who
2: started to explain that your generation came into one of the greatest recessions that the United States has ever faced. And what generation of Americans got dealt a worse hand than the millennials? Well, the labor movement's dead. The, the greatest transfer of wealth in the United States has happened since 1980 up, upward
1: to the okay, 1%. Okay, all right, but that sounds like the answer. <laughs> so, David, why don't you answer the question?
3: Well, I mean, the, 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 a big part of that is the, the, the generation who went through the Great Depression. I mean, the fact that those people, through that period of time, People had no idea when the depression might end. You look at the you look at the, the reality of that. I mean, you know, my my grandmother still think still thinks that when I call long distance it's expensive and so urges me to hang up as quickly as possible. Um so I you know I think that there is a long-lasting impact there, which interestingly you're not seeing among among millennials, right? So this idea that that we have had this this goes back to what we we're talking about earlier, the sense of resilience, I think is really, really important. So there have been you know, there's that generation was certainly, in, in recent history, in, the, in this century, I would say that generation was certainly David, there's one, there's
1: one part of your, argue, of your answer there, and, and it's come up a few times, is that I don't feel you've ever truly addressed Binta's point that while your optimism is real and is authentic, that it's happened again and again and again in time, and that in time, that optimism burns out, and you I believe are arguing, and Jessica are arguing that no, it's different with us this time. Are you actually arguing I'm not that. arguing that. You're not. I'm just
4: arguing that we're not. I mean, the proposition is that we're doomed. I, mean, I don't think we're doomed, you know? I don't okay. think that we're anything special, but it's just, you know, we have a lot of skills, and one that we haven't talked about before is that we are natives to this technology, which is to use a lame Silicon Valley word disrupting the world. And we understand those technologies much more deeply than the older generations. Wrong. And we are able to harness those technologies. And is that, I think, is that's that, think that's not that's even not, been
1: addressed. Bint, do you think that's not true? I think
0: that that's so unfair. I mean, I, the, the, Generation X was known as the computer generation. It, was also, it is also known as a digital generation. When I was 12 years old, I was playing on things called bulletin boards, which was an early version of the Internet. I wrote my senior thesis in 1995 on the Internet. And all of the different ways We're it's not talking just Internet use. Hang on, hang on. The the, the companies that you're talking about that make you digital natives, right, were all founded by, for the most part, with the exception of Facebook, were by and large founded by people in Generation X. It's simply inaccurate every time somebody says that the millennial generation is the only generation that gets digital. I'm interested in
1: David's Outburst, when you said we're not well, talking about internet use, what are you talking about? I mean, about?
0: The, the question, I
1: mean,
3: I, I alluded to this earlier, this question of, of, of nativism versus immigrantism, right? So this idea that if you, if you understand a technology innately in your upbringing— that it actually positions you over the long term to, to to use it more effectively, not just to create companies, it's just a piece of it, and you also look at the people who are the kinds of companies that are coming out today, whether it's whether it's a company. So,
1: so why does that make it different? Why does well, that, well, I would it,
4: say there's been a democratization of technology. That, the majority of millennials grew up with it, whereas Gen X, it was a very privileged thing for them to grow up and have, you, you know, were, internet in the home. The, like, the numbers are, have just... Skyrocketed. 98% so I think it's different of people in, in
3: this generation have regular access to the internet. Okay, Penta.
0: Okay, so when you create something, I would submit to you that you have a pretty good understanding as to how to use it. At the same time that your generation was becoming used to using these technologies, older generations have also become used to using these technologies. Now, there's a difference between, you know, we, we, we oftentimes talk about millennials as being digital savvy. You know, having the ability to make a Facebook post or to take a selfie or to snap. Snapchat or to engage on WhatsApp is not digital savvy. Having the ability to create the button is digital savvy. Right.
4: And more of them know how to code than people in Generation X. I'm not sure that that's actually accurate.
1: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is millennials don't stand a chance. And now we move on to round three. Round three are brief closing statements from each debater in turn to summarize their positions. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion to say that millennials don't stand a chance, W. Keith Campbell. He is professor of psychology at the University of Georgia and author of The Narcissism Epidemic. Thank you.
2: I, uh, I don't have any prepared remarks here. I was going to wing it based on the last conversation and, a and, and like a millennial. No. <laughs> I mean, uh, there are, don't even have millennial jokes. So uh, often, when I, uh, often when I think about things, I think, what do I tell my students and, and what do I want for my children who are going to be the next generation? And I'm scared. I mean, I'm scared for the future they have, maybe because I lack optimism or maybe because I'm realistic. I don't know. You can decide. Um, I tell my students, you know, figure out something to do that they can't do in China and that a robot or AI won't be able to do in five or ten years uh, because that's what's going to happen to a lot of the jobs. Um, and I, I hope to God my daughter becomes a physician, so, you know, if things get really bad, they'll keep her alive to care for the young. So I, um, I'm... I think I'm truly negative about things. Does that mean it can't change? Well, maybe, but it should have changed. We've had eight years of collapse. People should have done something, and what we decided to do is give a whole lot of money to bankers, which is great for New York when I looked around, but we haven't done anything so far. And so to me that doesn't sound like we're going to do anything in the future.
1: I yield my time. Thank you, Keith Campbell. Our motion is Millennials Don't Stand a Chance, and here to summarize her position against the motion, Jessica Gross. She's a contributor to Bloomberg Businessweek and Slate, and she's author of the novel Sad Desk Salad. Ladies and gentlemen, Jessica Gross.
4: So the people on this panel all seem to have very short historical memories. We don't seem to have discussed anything before 1930, so I'd like to do that now. Um, if you looked at income inequality in the Gilded Age in the late 19th century and the early and the turn of the century, it was even worse than it is now. Opportunity, Class movement was even lower than it is now. Poverty was worse than it is now. And I am and sure there were newspaper columnists writing in 1870, the horse millennials or whatever they were calling, you know, the buggy, the buggy riders, whatever they were calling them in 1870 were uniquely doomed. So I I just think that a lot of the way we frame millennials is based on a Period of prosperity in the '60s, which was in and of itself the anomaly in American history. So I think we have this warped perspective of you know what's facing millennials and how we can face those problems. Um, we are a, a fine generation, as we are as fine a generation as a group of 20 million people can be compared to a group of. 20 million other people. And so I would really urge you to urge against the idea that we are specifically doomed, especially when compared to the generations, centuries of generations that have come before us.
1: Thank you, Jessica Gross. Our motion is Millennials Don't Stand a Chance. And here to summarize her position supporting this motion, Benton Niambi Brown. She's a corporate tech lawyer, startup advisor, and human rights advocate.
0: Um, Things for millennials are not good. We've let this generation down. We've handed them a bad deal. It's because of our short-sightedness, that we have a world with a number of structural and systemic problems that dramatically decrease the likelihood of their life chances. Our education system is failing. Our entitlement system is broken. Uh, It's hard for them to find engaging work in order for them to become full uh, full economic participants. There is increasing distrust... Uh, and the, uh, amongst the millennial generation, amongst different groups of people, contrary to what we've heard tonight. And so I'm asking you all tonight not to vote for us because we need to win, because in a sense we already have. We were born before they were into a world where we had greater opportunity. Um, I'm asking you to vote for us because to do so is a tacit... Tacit recognition that a problem does in fact exist. And unless we recognize that a problem exists, we cannot solve it. And what I would like to see is for some of these infrastructural and structural problems to be addressed and resolved. So vote for the proposition, not that millennials are doomed, but that they do not have a chance as things stand today.
1: Thank you. Benton Brown. And that's our motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. And here to summarize his position against this motion, David Burstein. He's author of Fast Future, How the Millennial Generation is Shaping Our World. And he is the founder of Generation 18. David Burstein. So for
0: most
3: of our history, it has been older people who understood the world and where the world was headed better than younger people. And when we talk about young people, in this case we're talking about millennials, what we're really talking about is the future. And if you look at the past decade of our world and the amount of change that has taken place, yes, the world is always changing, uh, but if you look particularly at the last 10 years and the accelerated pace of change, that is the comfort zone for this generation. And that pace of change, that increased constant disruption, constant need to adapt to new ideas, new technologies, new platforms, new ways of doing things in our society – that is where this generation is not only comfortable, but truly excels. So in fact, young people and millennials at this time understand more about what is going to happen in our world than, any, than anyone else does. And we are actually leading the charge on a number of those different things. So when Binta says that we are, you know, what's going to happen, this generation is already stepping up to lead. We're entrepreneurs. We're innovators. There are people in this generation who are shaping the context and the reality of the worlds of everyone in this room and everyone on this planet. I think, in fact, millennials not only stand a chance but have an incredible advantage as we look, at, if we look at what's going to happen in the, in the next 20, 40 years, this is historically the generations of people who are younger, who understand the future, who understand where things are headed, who see the opportunity and move it forward, are able to do service not only for themselves but to the entire, their entire generation and people of all generations. So I think that this generation has incredible promise. Uh, we're not the greatest generation that ever lived, but we certainly stand a very good chance. So I'd urge you all to to, to vote, uh, vote, vote against the resolution.
1: Thank you, David Burstein. And that concludes our closing statements. <laughs> I would like to congratulate the, uh, the debaters on this stage for... Number one, uh, it takes a lot of guts to come up here and debate. It's a scary thing, and they all did it, and they all faced up to it. Number two, they did it in such a respectful manner, something that could have become nasty, childish, and ridiculous was actually high-toned, informative, and respectful. So our congratulations to all of them. So I have the results all in. Remember, you voted twice on this motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. The team whose numbers change the most between the first and the second vote will be declared our winner. Let's look at the results from the first of the two votes. In the first vote, Millennials don't stand a chance. 18% of you agreed with this. 47% were against. 35% were undecided. Those are the first results. We compare the second round of results now, and the team whose numbers have changed the most will be our winner. Second round. In the second round, the team arguing for the motion, their vote was 38%. That's 18 to 38%. That's a gain of 20 percentage points. That's the number to beat. Let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote was 47%. Their second vote, 52%. That's only 5 percentage points. Not enough to win. Victory goes to the side, arguing for the motion. Millennials don't stand a chance. Our congratulations to them, and thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosenkrantz is chairman, Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, Clea Chang is director of production, Chris Kamakawa is our researcher, and I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full, unedited version, or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash intelligence squared. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Now, imagine you could call up a friend and say, meet me at the bar and tell me what's going on with the economy. Now imagine that's actually a fun conversation. Now stop imagining and subscribe to the Planet Money podcast. Find Planet Money on iTunes along with other NPR podcasts.